and welcome to the Megan Talks podcast. I have done it, it is out in the world and this is my very first proper episode. I did release a little kind of trailer thing, it was just kind of a test to see what it was like putting a podcast together in terms of, you know, recording it, editing. The next thing on my list is to find a jingle. There are so many out there, it'll probably change over time but hey ho. So my first podcast is going to be about my mental health journey. So a little trigger warning before we get into everything, there will be discussions around mental health, anxiety, depression, antidepressants, therapy, that kind of stuff. Just if you don't feel comfortable listening to that type of stuff or it triggers you, feel free to click away and join in on the next one if it's a little bit more your type of thing. So without further ado, let's talk about my mental health journey. So, big sigh. Don't really know how this is going to go down. I'm not going to tell you everything because a lot of it is personal. But when I kind of started struggling with my mental health, I wish I wish I'd have listened to someone talk about their struggles and it being able to be something that I could have resonated with. So, if this helps just one person think, "Oh, I feel like that," or "I felt like that," I'm not alone. Then I think it's a little bit of a job done for me fingers crossed anywhere. I'm actually really nervous. I don't think I'm going to get upset but there is a possibility (laughs) so I haven't got any tissues with me so I'll be using my t-shirt. I think I'll start off by telling you kind of what I was like as a child. Um, I hope my family would somewhat agree with this. I was quite a bubbly and hyper child especially when I was on steroids for my asthma. I was always in everyone's face. I loved attention, I loved creating shows. It was always kind of watch me, watch me, watch me. Loved kind of being active, always up about and playing. I was super outgoing, would go to anyone, would talk to anyone and just kind of a really confident child. As I started to grow up and became kind of a teenager, started secondary school, I would kind of drift in between friendship groups. The kind of came, I guess it was like, I just wanted to be liked, just wanted to be liked. But then again, who doesn't, especially when you're younger, when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, those kind of vital years where you're kind of just growing up, you're just finding yourself, who doesn't want to be liked? And I clearly had this kind of burning desire to be liked by everyone, not just like my close friends that I'd grown up with, but the girls above, like the girls in the year above. I wanted people to think that I was cool and fun and I would do anything to kind of get myself in with any particular cliques. I remember there was a story that I told my therapist and (laughs) we'll get into that. But when I was in primary school, I would take a couple of the years, a couple of the girls in the year above, I would take biscuits in for them on a morning as a kind of please like me, which is, when you think about it, like pretty crazy. Yeah, weird. So I suppose then we come to college and university and that was when I kind of really wanted to conform but something was holding me back I guess especially in terms of going out and drinking alcohol. I think university has this big booze alcohol culture and although I'm, I'm not exactly a massive drinker now when I really wasn't when I was back in back in college and university. I think I went through like a little bit of a phase when I first turned 18 you know first got my ID and I was like right let's go to the Empire which is like a club in Borough on a Saturday night, we would go to Lloyd's, which is a Weatherspoons, before I'd get like a cocktail pitcher 
and then go down ahead to Empire. And I think looking back, there was a lot of anxiety back then. There was a lot of times, I was that type of person who would wander off and just get a taxi home without telling anyone where they'd gone. That was me. <laughs> there was a lot of times where I had to kind of come out and stand outside because the noise was too much. It was very, um, bit of a sensory overload. And that's something that I've kind of struggled with since. I was kind of involved in a big group of girls and they loved going out and rightly so, you know, each to their own, but I just have never been a massive lover. Like after that kind of novelty wore off, I was just not that bothered about going out. Like I still don't, like don't get me wrong, I love to go to the pub for a pint every now and then, but when it comes to a Saturday night, you'll find me either with a gin and lemonade or a cup of tea, snuggled up on the sofa watching Drag Race reruns, or a film. That's just me. But I struggled with that in, in college and university because everyone wanted to go out and I appeared the boring friend. And it was always, oh, Megan, don't be boring. Come on. What are you being boring for? Like if I ever said I was driving or... And I think that kind of stuck with me. I kind of got into my head that, oh God, I am boring. I'm only fun if I drink. And that wasn't the case at all because I am quite a fun person sober. I mean, I am funny when I have a drink. Um, oh God, that sounds so big headed. I am funny. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was boring, but the fact that not drinking apparently made you boring, that stuck in my head a lot and that affected me. Which I guess all this left me feeling slightly outcast because eventually I wouldn't get invited places because they the knew the answer would just be no. Life got a little bit lonely, let's say. So I started my blog in 2012. It was the year before I started university, so I took a gap year in between sixth form and university, and I started my blog then, and it went really, really well. I think I kind of put all of my anxieties and outside world influences aside, and my blog was just a, a place for me and myself to just write, get feelings out, even if I was talking about a blooming lipstick or perfume, it was just... It was my little kind of sanctuary. And yeah, I guess the blog really did help me, but it also made me go in on myself as well because I had a lot of like people online that I would speak to who I would like genuinely call friends, but I started to push my actual friends away because I just felt like I was boring. <laughs> Everyone was going out drinking and I was blogging, which yeah, is, is okay. It absolutely is okay. You do not have to be a big drinker or you do not have to be involved in that culture if you don't want to. But there was that pressure on me to keep involved with that. And I just, I didn't want to. Um, sorry, if, so if this is all over the place, I'm really sorry. I'm new to podcasting and I'm new to sharing a full story from like A to Z. I feel like you only ever hear snippets on social media and stuff like that. I suppose a big change for me was moving in with my ex-partner. We got a mortgage together. We were engaged at the time. I was still blogging and still getting a lot of fantastic opportunities, which was exciting. But I kind of, I started to feel like I was, oh, sorry, I can't get my words out. <laughs> I felt like I had to follow this expectation path, I guess. Like, you know, you're engaged, you bought a house, you got married, you had babies. And that was kind of not drilled into my head, but because my me and my partner back then had been together since we were kind of 14, 15, everyone would say, oh, you know, you're meant to be together, childhood sweethearts and all that. And because we'd been together for so long, I was like, okay, well, I guess this is, this is just how it's going to be. This is how it's supposed to be. And didn't kind of consider any other factors. Didn't consider happiness. I was just like, okay, yep this is it now. So yeah, get yourself a house, get yourself married and see what happens. But 
I was miserable. I was really, really sad. Because I'd kind of moved out, I had a lot more time by myself. I prioritised blogging and I pushed people away. If people wanted to make plans, I wouldn't do it. And it got to a point where I didn't want to do anything. Didn't want to see my family. Didn't want to see my friends. Didn't really spend much time with my partner. Seen a few people, but that was kind of it. But I think I hid this really well because eventually, I'll, I'll go into this later, but when I split up with that partner, it became a, it was a big shock to everyone, but it wasn't to me. So going back, I'd moved into this lovely house, gorgeous house. And that's when my kind of first call for help happened. I knew something wasn't right. I was feeling rubbish. I was just didn't want to move from my little corner sofa. Like I used to call it my hermit corner and it really was my hermit corner. Wouldn't move. So I went to the doctors and I was like, hey, I don't feel too good. <laughs> Can you help me? And they basically were like, it's probably your hormones. You know, you've had a lot of big changes in your life. I'm sure you'll be fine. And I was kind of sent away really, you know, disheartened because I was like, oh, right, okay. Well, I guess the right, you know, big changes should probably just carry on how I am. And so I did. A few months later, I started going to the gym. And I think a big thing that people are talking about now is that, you know, the gym isn't therapy, therapy is therapy. And that's very true. The gym, although it was a type of therapy for me, it was more of an escape, if anything. It helped my head, it gave me something to focus on. I was looking after myself again. It made me feel good, you know, it gave me them them good endorphins, but it, it was kind of temporarily plugging that gap, I guess. So a few months down the line from that initial first call for help, in September 2017, I sent an email to my local mind and I was like, I literally said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know I need to talk to someone. Is this the right thing to do? That was it. Something along those lines. And they got back to me and they were like, hi, Megan. You know, if you could fill out this questionnaire, we'd love to arrange a phone call for you. So I had a telephone assessment with a mental health practitioner. I'm not really sure what the right word is from mind we went through this kind of the um scales i can't remember what they're called there's one for anxiety and there's one for depression and you kind of you get yourself a score at the end and that kind of sees where you sit and she was like yep you definitely qualify for some therapy let's let's get it sorted let's put you on the waiting list and she was like you know the waiting list is about two or three months and i was like okay i've waited this long two or three months that's okay it wasn't two or three months. <laughs> I don't know if waiting lists have changed, but it took seven months from my telephone assessment to actually going in and speaking to someone, which, as you can imagine, was tough. And a lot happened in them seven months. So a couple of months after my telephone assessment, I actually left my relationship. I moved back in with my parents, left, you know, this house, this partner that I'd been with for 10 years, mortgage, a future, left it, moved back in with my mum and dad. And this definitely added to a downward spiral because I felt like an absolute failure. I felt like this kind of expected path, like, oh, you know, Megan's got herself a house. She's doing so well. She's got herself a good job. I felt like I'd fell all the way back to step one. I think living back with my parents, it was kind of like, oh, you know, I was an adult for once. I'd moved out. I was on my own time. I was doing my own thing and being back with my mum and dad looking after me, <laughs> essentially, which they did. It was tough. I also felt a huge amount of guilt and shame around breaking up with my ex. I think because obviously it not only hurt him at the time, it hurt me. It was a really tough decision to leave, but it was one that I knew had to happen. I knew that we would both benefit from it in the long run. So, however, the stars kind of aligned and 
a few days after I left the relationship and moved back in with my parents, my first appointment letter came through with the letterbox. It was if, you know, someone was watching over me thinking, yeah, this girl kind of needs it. <laughs> so I had my, I think I had eight CBT sessions with mind and it was good. Don't get me wrong. I would definitely still recommend them, but CBT wasn't really for me. There were some really good parts that kind of came from it. There was a lot of exercises that we did that really helped, especially in terms of rationalising, because I would literally think, these people hate me for what I've done. And it was, is that fact or is it opinion? And most of the time, it was my opinions, my beliefs of what I thought people thought about me, which I think happens so often. So many of us will sit there and think, they hate me, they don't like me, they think this about me, they think this. And how can you assume that? Like, you're not inside their head. But we do it anyway. We do it and we beat ourselves up about it. I'm just going to take a drink. Oh, I'm a, I'm a bit parched. So some of the things with CBT that didn't work for me were some of the exercises. For example, there was one called like a worry hour. And the kind of premise of it was that if you worry about stuff during the day, you kind of think about it, you assess it, but you kind of leave it to one side. And then you have an hour of your day that you kind of think about all your worries and I was like mm, yeah not not gonna work for me <laughs> it just wasn't for me just wasn't for me but I did get a lot of talking out of it not as much as I'd hoped and everything was kind of circling around my relationship breakdown which wasn't why I went there in the first place when I first initially rang so I feel like even though it was good at the time for when it did come it didn't kind of unpick everything so at this point in time I had took some time off of off work, went back to my GP, got a sick note and started to kind of slowly rebuild. And then there's quite a big gap, if I'm honest, because I met another person. Yes, some people might say it was quickly, but you can't help when you meet people. And he's great. We went away. We went travelling for two months to Thailand and Cambodia, came back, got a fantastic new job. We're now living in a lovely flat, hopefully looking for our first place together, like together, together, <laughs> not renting. And then lovely, lovely gorgeous COVID came <laughs> and the poop hit the fan, didn't it? <laughs> I think we all, we all feel like that, <laughs> well and truly. And everything seemed to be going kind of okay at first. I think quite a lot of people who I've spoke to will admit that with each lockdown, it got worse on mental states. <laughs> I know for sure it did for me. The first one, I think because it was sunny, it was nice and warm myself and Josh, we moved in with Josh's parents temporarily so that we could have like garden space, a lot more space, you know, people to talk to instead of being stuck in our second story flat. But then on my birthday last year, so 2020 October, I spent a lot of my birthday sobbing, crying. I missed my friends, I missed my family, I had a massive crisis that everyone hated me and everyone would just leave me and it was just awful. <laughs> it was really crap. It was a really rough time and I think the pandemic mixed with everything else I just wasn't feeling myself and Josh could see that too despite the gym being really good for my head obviously November we were back in another lockdown no gym but I actually reached out I think it was the day after my birthday I looked on the counselling directory on the Happyful app and found a local counsellor who literally lived like two minutes away from me and contact her and I was like because I've only gone through mine before and this is go this was going private I didn't really know the kind of route you had to go down and I just want to say I completely acknowledge that going to private therapy is such a privilege because obviously it does cost money and 
it was worth it to me. I would have rather had, I don't know, stopped eating all my takeaways, <laughs> stopped buying hot chocolates and, you know, stopped buying new gym leggings because goodness knows I don't need any more and taken up therapy any day of the week because if you can afford to pay for it and you feel like you need it, I think it's important. But I totally understand that some people can't afford to pay for it and I suppose that's where the NHS steps in. So despite the gym still being good for my head, it had gotten to a point where I couldn't even look at people in the face when I was in there. I still struggle now, but we'll get to that eventually. Um, I'm definitely getting better, but some days I would go in, have lovely conversations with people. Some days I would go in and I would think, I cannot look anyone in the eye because I don't even know why. Like, <laughs> I can't even pinpoint it why I didn't. I don't know if it was embarrassment, if it was shyness. I think it might have been mistaken for rudeness or arrogance, but I literally was petrified. My heart would shake. Like, before going to the gym, I would have to go up the toilet, sorry for the TMI, like three or four times because I was just scared. And I don't even know what I was scared about. I really don't know. So in these therapy sessions, I think I'll do another podcast talking about therapy, but we unraveled a lot. Like I said, when I'd previously went to therapy, we'd kind of spoke strictly about my relationship breakdown, but we kind of delved right back into childhood, right back into things that had gone on in my life, multiple things, and started to kind of unpick and unravel a lot of the groundwork, shall I say. <laughs> And it seemed to be going really well. Loved my therapist. Love, love, love. We got on really, really well. Everything seemed to be going okay, despite the type of lull that I had before Christmas when lovely Bozza changed the, uh, the circumstances <laughs> a few days before. That hit me like a ton of bricks, it really did. I'm very, very close to my family. I spend a lot of time with them when I can. And not being able to see them as much as I used to sucked. And I know everyone would have felt that way. But by the end of January this year, I'd kind of slumped massively and I began to feel numb. I I guess I just wanted to lay down. I wanted to be horizontal. <laughs> God, that is not a word. I wanted to be horizontal. Um, I didn't want to do anything apart from maybe like sit and read. And I started to experience a level of disassociation. Josh picked up on this. He said it was like I was spaced out, like my body was there, but <laughs> the rest of me wasn't. I would just kind of, I wasn't present. I wasn't me, I wasn't laughing. I was very kind of one note. And I, I said that to my therapist. I was like, I don't feel like I'm up and down. I feel like I'm just stagnant, which was scary. <laughs> I think scary for Josh more so than me because I wasn't aware that it was happening. Josh hated seeing me like that as I can imagine any partner would. And anyone who was spending time with me, obviously at that time in lockdown, Josh was the only one in my company. So I reached out again, I spoke to my therapist about antidepressants and obviously as a doc, she's not a doctor so she couldn't give me that kind of medical advice but she said, you know, she's had a range of patients who've benefited really well from, from uh, medication, some who haven't and it's kind of totally independent to who you are I guess and how, how your body takes them. And so I did, I literally, I left therapy on the morning, rang up the doctors the next morning and got a telephone appointment and it was the strangest situation ever. I literally, I was like, hi, <laughs> so I think I need antidepressants. And she was like, okay, why? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, really low mood. I'm kind of disassociating. I feel really spaced out. Um, just have no energy to do anything. And she said, you know, you, you're speaking to someone, you're in therapy. And I was like, yes. And she was like, okay, I've sent them over to the pharmacy. You can go and pick them up tomorrow. And I was like, right okay right cool 
wow, that was quick, that was easy. And I just didn't expect it to be that simple. <laughs> I, I thought I would, you know, I thought she would ask me more questions. I think the conversation lasted 90 seconds, if that, which was very strange, <laughs> very short and brief. I'll do, again, another podcast on medication, but I was prescribed uh, sertraline, 50 milligrams. The first two weeks were pretty bumpy, I'm not gonna lie, not to put anyone off, please don't let it put you off. Especially the first few nights, I had a metallic taste in my mouth. I couldn't really sleep, but I was constantly yawning and feeling tired and I felt numb. <laughs> kind of how I was feeling, like I felt completely numb, like no up, no down, just one note still. And I couldn't cry, <laughs> which was so strange for me because I'm such a crier, like I will cry at anything. When those donkey adverts come on, I'm in tears. <laughs> I'll cry when I'm happy, I'll cry when I'm sad. And I don't mind crying, it releases so much for me. And it was strange not to be able to cry. I remember it was when the, was it Channel 4, It's a Sin? Or was it BBC 3? E, I'm so sorry, I can't remember. Or was it even Channel 5? I don't know. But the show It's a Sin about um, HIV with Ollie from years and years. Brilliant show. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's fantastic. But it took me to the last episode to cry. Like, that's kind of how the tablets took a toll on me. And there was plenty of situations throughout that whole kind of five episodes where I would have normally, had I not been on these, the medication, sobbed my heart out. And even like Josh would be like, I can't believe you're not crying. I'm like, I can't. Literally no liquid <laughs> would come from my eye until the last episode. <laughs> and I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. And then I was sobbing happy tears because I was sobbing. <laughs> I was like, I can cry again. It was a good feeling. And I guess from there, I've kind of slowly started to feel myself again. I've kind of admitted, like, if I have this chemical imbalance that these tablets, these medication solve, then so be it. I'll be on it for the rest of my life if I need to. <laughs> if they make me feel like myself again, why not? I'm not ashamed about it at all. So then I slowly started phasing therapy out, kind of lengthening my time in between. And I had my last one a few weeks ago. Um, my therapist said we can keep an open line of communication. You know, I can kind of go back there whenever I need. I'm still on antidepressants. So I've been on them for, I think, three months now. No kind of sign of up in dose, down in dose coming off them. I'm kind of just content with how, how they're doing for me right now. And, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And I'm aware that I'm not always going to feel like this. I'm not always going to be like happy-go-lucky Megan. You know, I'm going to have days, maybe a week, when I feel a bit crap. I feel really low. But when I look at what I've been through mentally, I know I can come out the other end. And it's still a journey. When Ronan Keaton said that life is a roller coaster, <laughs> boy was he right. <laughs> On all seriousness, no. It has been an absolute journey for me and I, I'm don't expect it to end anytime soon. I know that it will be up and down. And I know that everyone's mental health kind of situations that they go through is completely different. This is my experience. This is my opinions and insight into what I have gone through. It might not be the same for someone else. But if you are out there and you are struggling, talk to someone. <laughs> and it seems like such kind of repeated advice, but had I not opened my mouth, and told my mum that I was unhappy in my relationship, I'd probably still be in it today and kind of wouldn't have experienced, you know, half of the joy that I had. Nothing lasts forever. 
and I am so happy in the place that I am now. The NHS is there to help if you can't afford private therapy. My inbox on Instagram, whatever, is always open to people that I do know, people that I don't know. But thanks for listening because I feel like I've just rabbited on about myself, which essentially I have. Like I said at the beginning, when I first started going through all this stuff, I literally thought that it was just me going through this because I don't think, like, even a few years ago, people didn't really talk about mental health. People didn't share their own experiences. It was still kind of stigmatised, and it still is, you know, especially anxiety and depression are quite general, common mental illnesses, issues. I don't really know the right PC way to say it. There's so many more out there that people struggle with that need to be kind of brought to light, discussed about, so that the stigma is no more. Hopefully I'll be getting some people on the podcast to kind of talk about their own experience with mental health. See, this is why I started blogging, because it's so cathartic. Like, it's like a release. I feel now that I've shared my story, that, like, my shoulders have dropped, like, the tension's gone, and maybe people might understand a little bit better. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, I feel like I'm proper rambling now. Yeah, thank you very, very much for listening to my first episode. (sighs) What a whirlwind. What a whirlwind. I promise that they all won't be this deep and emotional and that. (laughs) I'm going to say goodbye now because I'm going to keep on rambling. I've tried to say this sentence about 14 times. (laughs) But yeah, thanks for listening. (laughs) And I will speak to you soon whenever my next episode is, whatever it may be. Just going to end it with a bye again. Bye.